Chapter Four of Murder at St. Denis by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Marmion well knew there was no sound other than trifles in the little sitting room, the tap of Eloise's knitting needles, the tiny blowing of Lynn's cigarette smoke toward the ceiling, the chirp of the sparrow on the flat roof outside the window. The respirator's wheezing could not possibly reach up here and yet marmion heard it in the way one catches an offensive odor long after coming into pure air this was her rest period from three to five she had come upstairs with the idea of playing uncle josh and proving he had taken a hog and not a dog to the county fair as blanche insisted but eloise was already there barefooted her feet stuck out before her to hold her ball of yarn in a few minutes lynn had wandered in off duty at three but looking as fresh as if she had just spent the past eight hours in sleep rather than in the exacting business of caring for big balsam cassidy she wore a scarlet satin robe too stunning for a women's dormitory in the front of it a safety pin had pulled a hole she lay back in the chair with a leaky arm and blew a smoke ring he's a showman right to the core lynn said the estimable kingston of course eloise nodded what's he staging now he stopped along my stout cassidy loved it he's another miracle man well it demonstrated that big balsam is recovering marmion declared but as lynn shook her head she added didn't it no if cassidy had been paralyzed then i'd say yes but he never was his respiration is slowed to the point where he couldn't breathe in enough oxygen to keep him alive but he could always manage a few breaths shutting off the lung was mostly a stunt then why do it a therapeutic measure persuade him he's better and he will be eloise thoughtfully rolled the yarn between her feet i'd bet on king knowing what he's doing though and he's a marvellous surgeon i don't deny he's excruciating to work with temperamental as the dickens magdalen is the only one he can't browbeat still i guess i'd rather work with him than with some old slugger that didn't know a scalpel from a button-hook the yarn rolled away Swooping after it, she added, I certainly love to despise Guy Mary Kingston, M.D. Join the sisterhood, said Lynn. He can't stand the sight of me, Eloise went on. He's as introverted as a bear with a sore paw. Do you know what I've figured out? That I remind him of some dame that done him wrong. So every glimpse he gets of me, he wants to throw up. You're sure it isn't his liver? Marmion lifted a strand of blonde hair from her shoulder and studied it. We're not not what eloise asked alike but he hates me too maybe he detests all women what's the word for it misogyny said lynn but less agoraphobia marmion observed our good doctor has quite a cross to bear eloise jerked the knitting dram i told sister judy nobody could learn to knit without using profanity so we compromised on dram it's a reasonable facsimile when are you kids going to get some ashtrays? Lynn asked, looking around lazily. When somebody gives them to us, said Eloise. Lynn arose, stretching the scarlet gown shining against her long limbs. These two were like a pair of conspirators, circling between Marmion and King, on guard for the man they professed to loathe. Well, you won't get away with concealing information, Marmion vowed. Agoraphobia, fear of the marketplace, she remarked, the opposite of claustrophobia fear of being closed in is king so morbidly afraid of open spaces that he never sets foot outside is that why sister magdalen was so astounded when he stepped out to take my suitcase 
Lynn was in the doorway, her brown eyes wide as Eloise's. "'You're kidding!' Eloise exclaimed. "'King actually went outside. I don't believe it.' "'He did. But what I'd like to know is, where did he get this unnatural fear? Was it because something awful happened to him in a wide-open space of some kind, and he can't forget it?' Eloise shrugged. Lim dropped her smoldering cigarette on the floor and stepped on it. "'A wide-open space or a closed-in one. It would have to be either, wouldn't it?' The gay figure went on out, and the two girls sat in silence, listening to Lynn's footsteps, padding away. "'Her lovely Baird isn't immune to King, either,' Eloise remarked. Marmion sat down in the chair Lynn had vacated. "'She gets his goat, though. This morning he told her to aspirate Cassius Trachia tube right away, but she didn't do it until after King was gone. He was mad.' "'An attention-getting device. If you can't make him notice you because he likes you, get him mad enough to notice you anyway.' But if she hates him? She doesn't. She's just like all the rest of us. She's more than a little bit in love with him. I'm not, Marmion declared heatedly. The argument was still going on when Blanche wandered in and asked if it was hog or dog. I haven't had time to find out, said Marmion. We're just getting down to a definition of love. I say it's nature's clever way of fooling us into carrying on the race. Blanche regarded her with sorrow. You've never been in love. Have you? Usually. There's different kinds. Take Johnny. I think how nice it would be to have him up here, maybe listening to the gramophone, and him and me laughing and kidding. Where is Polycarp about this time? Eloise inquired. And they'll be more like Johnny, but then there's the other kind. It takes your breath away, like you went outside on a thirty below morning, and it hurt to breathe. And someone has made you feel that way, Blanche? Marmion asked. The big girl cupped her hands around her elbows and rocked gently. Sure, the doctor. The knitting fell to Eloise's lap. Blanche ducked her head, hiding her little embarrassed smile, but she continued. Of course he doesn't even know I'm alive. I wouldn't ever get to marry a man like him. The most I'll ever have is a fellow on wages and a runty house with everything shoved under the bed when I get company. But I like work, so I guess I'll make out. I gotta go now. I'm carrying trays. They listened to her steps going away, as Lynn's had done. Ellie? Mm? Do you suppose you'll ever look at a man and feel like it hurt to breathe on a cold morning? I wish I knew, said Eloise. The storm was already rising in the west when Marmion recollected her duty and hastened down to the laboratory. Sister Judy was not there to note her tardiness. Marmion was just finishing her work when a nurse came in with a tray of bottles. I had to bring my own, so I picked up Hennessy's, too. She was not pretty, and yet the most common description of her was that pretty little Miss Bryan. Her brown hair curled out from under her cap like a baby's under a bonnet, but her forehead showed the cramp of pain, and her eyes were squinted against the light. "'Headache, Dixie?' Marmion asked. "'A brute. What time is it? Six-thirty? Glory be, it's a long time till eleven. "'Can't you get somebody to pinch hit for you?' "'I suppose Mrs. Hayes would come early if her helpmate isn't plastered. He usually is.' What a life, listening to that bum all day and Cassidy all night. If there's anything I can do, Dixie. Well, as a matter of fact, there is. Look in on Mrs. Topman. She wants some little errand done. I don't know what, and she won't ask the floor nurse because they're having a battle. I'll have to run now. Hennessy is standing with Cassidy while I'm up here. You can't leave these patients alone at all. Thanks, Marmy, and don't forget. Marmion worked on, completing tasks that could just as well be done tomorrow, 
She did not want to be idle with a storm coming up. Thunder was her terror, a senseless terror, because the lightning never bothered her. The boom and crash of the thunder would be right over her head in the crow's nest. But eventually everything was finished, the sink scrubbed, and every bottle washed. She would bring her reports to the nurses, and at the same time do the errand for Mrs. Topman. As she turned out the light, the creeping, growling bear of a storm touched his forepaw to the gulch and began to spit snow. It was nearly nine on the clock above the chart dusk. The floor nurse was not in sight. Marmion set an ink bottle on top of her small sheaf of slips and went on into Mrs. Topman's room. The patient was sitting up in bed reading a newspaper, her pink flannel sleeves rolled up from arms that would have been a handy size for a wrestler. "'Oh, it's you, dearie. Come in. You're not going to prick me at this hour of the night, are you?' "'That's good. I was up today, but I says to Doc, don't push me,' I says. "'The only vacations I get are when the stork comes.' "'You seen the twins?' "'Tomorrow I will.' "'You got to prick him?' "'Oh, yes, every day.' "'Well, try not to gash him too deep. "'Look, dearie, would you do me a favor? "'I won't ask that frizzled-up Miss Bacon.' "'That's what I came for, Mrs. Topman. "'Miss Bryan.' "'She's a sweet one, that. "'You open the middle drawer of the dresser. "'See, a long white box.' "'This one? "'It could be a dozen long stem roses.' "'No, it's Sister Peter's corset.' I guess the bones in the old one were sticking her something awful. This one's got steel ribs, regular girders, awful heavy, but she won't mind. My oldest girl, Melly, was going around to town today, so I had her get it. Sister said to take it good and big, so if she ain't spared to wear it out, Sister Magdalene can take over and be comfortable. I couldn't look forward to a thing like that myself. Seems like when I buy a new girdle, I kind of take a new lease on life. Marmion pretended to be smoothing the paper on the box, a box too sturdy for roses. I'll deliver it, safe and sound. Fine. If you could catch Sister Peter before they go into the great silence for the night. Oh, and tell her Molly will be glad to change him if they ain't big enough. The girl looked back at the kind, florid face framed by the sparse little braids. I'll tell her, she said. Although the thunder crashed just then, she barely noticed it. Marmion went slowly down the stairs. It would not be easy to reach a sister once the good oak door of the cloister had closed behind her a door that no layperson ever opened except the repairman thoroughly chaperoned. Down at the bottom of the entrance stairs, the black doors still showed tiny splashes of rain and snow. The wind threw itself about, a pine cone snapped against a pane, one of the old panels rattled as if someone leaned shivering against it. Any minute now, the crawling giant would fling himself into the gulch. The thunder was almost continuous, the lightning flared white on the hillside. With the box under her arm, Marmion glanced up and down the hall. Far off to the right, the cloister door was closed on shadows. To the left were King's office, the diet kitchen, a ward or two, the wing where Big Balsam Cassidy was returning to life as boisterously as he had gone about dying. The storm violence outside lent the place coziness. Nothing in the quiet setting to warn of murder. Nothing to tell the girl that this was a chosen hour, that her own safety was to depend upon her turning back up the stairs and forgetting the lab reports in her hand and Mrs. Topman's box under her arm. She hesitated, but only for a second. Then she walked down the dim hall to lay her slips on the chart desk. It was the vague thought that the night supervisor, Sister Ursula, might be in the wing that kept Marmion lingering. That, and the fact of the storm being shut away somewhat by the flanking rooms. Waiting, she leaned against the wall. Once, long ago, on this very spot, a miner's wife had tried to kill herself because her man had been blown to bits up in the killjoy. The ghost still lived. 
When the door at her elbow opened, Marmion was startled. She had heard no voices inside. But now Dr. Hamlin came out. He had been the first doctor to hang out his shingle in the gulch, but he would not remember little Job's daughter. And King, with his stethoscope around his neck. Then Miss Hennessy, who was always at loggerheads with everyone but her patients. She was wheeling a stretcher on which a young boy lay, wrapped to the chin. The small procession passed Marmion without notice. When she was asked, later, how long she remained there, she never could tell. She heard the creaky old elevator ascend to the second floor. If the clock struck, the small tinny sound was consumed by the storm. No one else entered or left the hall. She swore to that. No one until then Baird came out of Big Balsam's room. She stood in the wedge of light for a second, looking back at her patient. Then she closed the door, and saw Marmion. She approached swiftly. Do you know where Hennessy is? She just took a patient on the stretcher. Oh, the broken leg. I've got to have Cassidy's medicine. I suppose Dixie didn't think of it, with that horrible headache. You took her place? That's sweet of you, then. Not particularly. I have nothing to do evenings. Listen, if you stay with Cassidy, I'll run down to the pharmacy myself. King must have put out the medicine, and Dixie forgot. I don't like to leave the patient alone. He's too restless. But I've just cleaned out his tracheotomy, and I'm sure he'll be all right for a few minutes. Something within Marmion recoiled, as if she smelled food that had once made her very ill. But she couldn't refuse. Of course I'll stay. Only hurry, won't you? Clasping the corset box, Marmion went reluctantly to the end of the wing. She opened the door, and the suction of the lungs seemed to draw her into the room. Big Balsam lay as he had before, his head protruding from the clown's ruff of cotton. But this time his eyes were closed, and a faint blood color had crept deep into the flush of his cheeks. Had the therapeutic measure, as Lynn termed it, been responsible for all this? "'You are better, really better,' Marmion said." She was close to him, but Big Balsam did not hear. She did not hear herself very clearly. The thunder smashed at the old building, shaking the very hillside on which it stood. She never knew how many minutes she remained there, beside him, before the gagging began. Only a few small bubblings at first, but terrifying to Marmion, because she was alone, and because she remembered his misery of this morning, and because his head began to jerk away from the confining collar. Help me! He mouthed the words noiselessly. "'Don't struggle like that,' she begged. "'And don't be afraid. I'll get Sister Ursula or Miss Hennessy. You're all right.' He nodded faintly. She started toward the door, but only a step. Before she could take another, the storm lashed viciously against the windows. The whole Boston mountain quaked. And the lights went out. Sudden, complete night fell upon the room, and under the stunning blow of it, Marmion stood motionless. She did not think for that first moment. To fear the crashing thunder, or to wish that the illumination of the lightning might enter the room through the drawn chaise, she did not think at all, until she missed the sound of the lung. She moved then, quickly, and came up hard against the cool side of the respirator. The feel of it was the impact of terror. The thing had stopped. Inside it, gagging and choking, Big Balsam lay helpless in the dark. Her panic scattered any coherent reasoning Marmion might have done. Disconnected bits fled through her mind. Cassidy could breathe without the lung. He had done it this morning. But the doctor had been there. The patient was not frightened. There must be a way to work the lung by hand. If only she knew how. If she could find the mechanism in the pitch dark. Marmion's hand slid down to the man's face. 
"'You're all right, Mr. Cassidy. I'll help you. Don't be afraid.' She didn't know whether he tried to answer. His efforts to breathe were surely not so vigorous as they had been. "'Help!' she screamed. "'Help! Come quick, somebody!' She left the lung to feel along the wall, find the closet door, and be full by it until the clothes brushed her face, then fumble on again, screaming and sobbing, in her panic not knowing the outside door when she came to it, on past it until she stumbled against the dresser. That was when the door opened across the room behind her. She would not have known about it except that a flashlight beam struck across to her and was instantly shut off. Lynn, she sobbed. Is it you, Lynn? Help him. Hurry. The light did not come on again. Beyond the window shades the lightning flashed, but its brilliance was shut out of the room. Whoever had entered was invisible in the darkness, the sound of any movement imperceptible in the uproar of the storm. Who is it? Marmion begged. Turn on your flash. I'll help you. She stopped, for suddenly, so late, a warning sense told her that she would not be answered. Someone had come in, of that she was certain. A stealthy presence, uncannily hushed, moved somewhere near the lung. And then, in a moment of comparative quiet, she became aware that the man's struggle for breath had ceased. At the same time there was a new sound, a steady, small hissing. She didn't know when the bubbling breath had stopped and the hissing began. Her fright had become a physical state, freezing her screams into a faint mewling, sucking darkness into her brain. The hissing was a snake, rising green-eyed and swaying beside her, a monster she could not fight off, and she fell into a gaping, quiet cavity of night that had nothing to do with the storm. It was Dr. Kingston who tripped over the unconscious girl, knelt to feel her pulse briefly, roared at Johnny to never mind her and get light wherever he could. There were half a dozen flashlights by then. Lynn's turned on the pressure gauge of the lung. Dixie's on the floor while she pushed and pulled the hand lever of the bellows and tried to keep in time with Lynn's counting. Johnny held a trembling light for the doctor and Sister Ursula. Marmion, coming slowly back to consciousness, heard the respirator and thought it was her own breathing. Her bed was too hard. She moved, her elbow struck the wall, and then she remembered. The doctor turned suddenly and looked straight down at Marmion. Are you all right? She nodded. Then get out of here. She was still sick and weak, and his curtness made her want to cry. She pushed herself to a sitting position, and the effort riled up the darkness into which she had fallen. The doctor, she saw through a giddy haze, was paying no attention to her. Dixie, doggedly working the hand lever, was a strange sight in pajamas and fluffy housecoat. They were on other-world company, all of them, casting great shadows, silent, their hands and face pale and inhuman. Sister Magdalene alone stood back, perhaps because too many hands would hinder, but her gaze was fixed on the man in the lung. Marmion could not see him. She didn't want to see him. She got up slowly and dragged herself out of the room. Someone had lighted a kerosene lamp on the chart desk, and threw the flood around it, dazzling in comparison to darkness. Marmion made her way. In the soft gray mist of the stairs, she sat down. Her head was splitting, she could not think. But she knew she had behaved very badly, screaming and fainting, acting generally like a schoolgirl, as King would have expected. How good it would be now to remember that she had kept her wits, taken a few seconds to orient herself in the darkness, and then gone competently to find a nurse. And she might have controlled her terror at the last if that person hadn't come in. Groaning, Marmion dropped her head into her hands. "'What's the matter, baby?' Eloise asked, 
sitting down beside her because the stairs were narrow and she must leave room for all the hurrying nurses my head run into a door in the dark not exactly i was with cassidy just now when the power went off and of course the lungs stopped it was pretty ghastly she felt the other girl's thigh tighten against her own marmy he didn't he they got it going again in time marmion stiffened against the railing and a bit of carving dented her shoulder in time what do you mean eloise's cold grip was upon her wrist into the pool of light at the chart desk three people emerged from the dark wing sister ursula sister magdalen and the doctor as king seated himself and took down a chart lynn joined them then dixie folding the blue robe about her the doctor began to write all the eyes followed his pen shocked and unbelieving even for those who have seen the transition, it is hard to accept the fact that the burly living has suddenly become the dead. Oh, no, Marmion breathed. But King's pen went on writing, setting down the record that meant the end of the embattled, formative period of the Hellbent and the Hills, because Big Blossom Cassidy was only a name now. He had died while Marmion stood helpless beside him. Everything they had done since had been done for a dead man. Huddled together on the stairs, the two girls did not see the small figure come quietly up from the dark end of the hall and go in silence up the stairs behind them. When they were asked whether anyone had passed, both were positive that no one had. End of chapter 4